This morning we are in a chapter of the Bible where somebody who has been walking in obedience to God and in promise and has been settled and at home for a long time is being asked to go somewhere, to move on. And um, even... So for, for weeks, I've been thinking about this message and, and not really knowing the, the context in which I'd be teaching it, but it's been a message that focuses on change. And I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of opportunity to consider change and change in the Bible and what God teaches us about change. And um, so I... I hope this will be a, uh, a message that is um, comforting and orienting, but also leaves room for the, the difficulty and the pain that change so often brings. Um, let me start with prayer. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, you Son of the living God, have mercy on we who are sinners have mercy on me. I am a sinner. Lord God, you are holy and worthy. Holy Spirit, you bring wisdom and virtue and peace. And we submit ourselves to you, Father. We thank you for the comfort of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the, the story of Joseph is a a story that shows us that in all kinds of inexplicable and hard-to-understand circumstances, then God has overarching purpose that is often really, really hard to see if you're in the middle of it. God has purpose for Joseph, even in the terrible circumstances he faced of being betrayed and brought to a foreign land and then falsely accused and wrongfully imprisoned, indefinitely, as far as he could tell. And what he couldn't possibly have known was that God was doing something. That doesn't mean that God wanted him to, wanted his brothers to betray him. God could have brought Joseph to Egypt any way he wanted, but he used the sin of his brothers against Joseph to do something really good. And God, one, one thing that, is, that this story reminds us of especially as we know it's going into the Exodus, God works his purposes in these overarching perspectives that we can't possibly know or see. I, was, um, I, was, uh, re- I spent some time in Psalms this week, and it's, uh, if, you, if you want to, you can go to Psalm 103.7. What it says it's, talking, it's recounting what God did for Israel as he brings them later out of Egypt. And it says, God showed his acts to Israel, but he showed his ways to Moses. Israel got to see the things that were going on, but only Moses got God to explain to him why he was doing what he was doing. He showed his ways to Moses. And the difference was Moses spent a tremendous amount of personal time with God. So let's look at the text. Israel took his journey with all that he had. What's happening here is Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers. The famine is still raging in the land, and Joseph has sent his brothers as his messengers and his ambassadors saying, go 
get my father, get his household, bring everybody to Egypt. And, and it's a, a, a shocking and joyful procession, but in many ways a dismaying procession because Jacob is now having to leave the land that he is the inheritor of. And he's been there for 100 years, and he's been comfortable, and God's saying, nope, you're going to go here now, and this is not your land. And that's, you can imagine there's got to be some uh, excitement about what they're going into, but a lot of sadness about what they're leaving because it's their home. But Jacob does an interesting thing. He goes to Beersheba, and he offers sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, from where they were, Beersheba's not directly on the way. He goes out of his way to go to this place where he and his, grand, and his father and his grandfather, so Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, have all met God there. And he says, he goes, he goes to this place and he worships and sacrifices. And what happens? As we see so many times, what happens is God meets him and reiterates his promises And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am the God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Our king closes our eyes. So he's saying, don't worry. I was with you here, I'll be with you there. I'm going with you. I'll bring you down. You're going to die there, but I'm also going to bring you back up. Which is an interesting situation. So Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, and his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all of his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jashin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Koath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job. That now Job is actually Job. Some people say that that's the Job from the book of Job. They have their arguments for it. I don't think so. I think the book of Job is a lot older and it's in, the, and it's in a different geography. The sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, not Musk, and Jahil. The sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob and Padan Aram to, together with his daughter Dinah, and altogether his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunei, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, and Sarah and their sister. The sons of Beriah, Eber, and Malkiel. Eber is where we get the, uh, the word Hebrew, by the way. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob 16 persons. The sons of Jacob, or sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin. Now get this. Benjamin's like 25. The sons of Benjamin. Bila, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, I'm assuming those are twins, and Ard. He's got 10 sons. He has been busy. 
These are the sons of, so, I'm, and I'm, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because he's the favored one, and, and uh, Jacob lost Joseph, and in his mind, he, all he's got is Benjamin, and he's like, Benjamin, bring me grandbabies, and he did, and he probably got started at 15 or so. Um, these are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, uh, Jazil, Guni, Jezer, and Shilam. These are the sons of Billah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob, all who came into Egypt and who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two, and all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, there's a huge, uh, unnecessarily large controversy about this because so when Stephen, in the book of Acts, I think in Acts chapter 7, uh, when he recounts this, he says there were 75 people. This says there were 70 people. And this is from what's called the Masoretic Text. Um, and so for a long time, the Jewish people said, see, your New, your New Testament is, is off. It's off base. And then they found the Dead Sea Scrolls that had older copies, and the older copies said 75, which was upsetting because a lot of people had put a lot of symbolic uh, effort into well, the significance of it being 70, because 70 is the traditional number of the sons of God that we've talked about in all those eerie passages, and maybe there's something there. And then we find the old texts and Stephen say there were 75. So uh, bake that however you want. I, I started to make a big deal out of it, and I was like, I think it's 75, and you know, we just have slight differences. And, and where that probably comes from is how you count Joseph's family, because there's, uh, there's text that says that Joseph actually had more offspring besides just his two sons, and some texts accounted for them, and some did not. So that's, that's what it comes down to. Um, so Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. They already knew where they wanted to go. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I've seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. And I love that. It's, it's very reminiscent of Simeon holding the baby Jesus and saying, I can die now. I've seen him. And we have Israel saying, I had an inexplicable hope that I would see Joseph again, and now I've seen him. His hope is fulfilled, just as we will see the face of Christ that we haven't been able to see yet, but we all hope and hope and hope and hang on to this inexplicable hope that some people say is so absurd and so ridiculous, but we know somewhere in our heart that we're going to see his face again. We don't know when or where or how, and Jacob could have said the same thing about Joseph, I don't know when or where or how, and, but he, he talks about seeing him in the land of the dead. He talks about how he's been taken from him, but he, he, he talks about how he's lost. But somewhere, he was hanging on to this hope that he would see Joseph again, and then he sees him, and it's that incredible reunion and that inexplicable hope fulfilled. Joseph said to his brothers in his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And all the men and shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that they may dwell in the land of Goshen. 
for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. It means God's people will be separate from the world in which they live. They'll be separate and generally looked down upon. But God, you know, we, we had this, at the beginning of the chapter, we had this reiteration of the covenant that God had made. And if you, on your own time, if you want to go back and look at um, where God uh, stated that covenant in Genesis t- uh, 12 and in Genesis 15, then he said certain things like, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Well, this Pharaoh blesses them and is blessed. He winds up as a result of his generosity to, uh, to uh, Jacob and his sons. You see, he's going to wind up basically concentrating all the wealth of Egypt into his hands. He, he, gets, he becomes tremendously powerful. And then later, we're going to see a different Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. If you continue on into Exodus, it starts off by saying, now there's a new Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph, and that's 440-ish years later. And what you see there is he curses them, and he's cursed as a result. And he's the one who goes through the 10 plagues and loses a lot of power and loses a lot. So God's covenant bears true that um, he blesses those who blesses people and curses those who curses people. It also bears true from the, uh, the Genesis 15 one where there was where he made these, the symbolic uh, covenant with Abram. Remember we talked about how they split the animals and God walked down the middle and Abram didn't have to and, and all that. You can go back and grab that sermon if you want. But one of the things he says is, know for certain your offspring will go to a foreign land and they will be enslaved there. So he told him that's going to happen. And Jacob is probably wondering if this is how that's going to happen because they're uprooting and going to a foreign land. And it's starting off great, but it doesn't end so good. But God has a purpose in it. So they're facing a time of difficult change, and I just want, I wanted to say a few things about change that I've been reflecting on and that have been um, helpful and comforting to me, and I hope none of this comes across as, you know, me trying to tell you, oh, you, 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 don't, you don't have to feel what you feel, because that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there are certain truths about change. There's no growth without change, and there's no change without loss, and there's no loss without grief, and there's no grief without pain. There's something about how God set us up in this life to where we are in a constant state of change. Some changes are easier than others, and some hurt more than others. Some changes are a relief, but most changes are hard, and different people take it differently. My wife, I've learned from her to appreciate the difficulty of change because I grew up in such flux that, you know, I first time I ever returned to the same school building was sophomore year of high school, so for me it was just normal. But she has this heart that, that, um, that really feels the change and feels the loss. When our, when our daughter Jolene started school, I think Rachel cried every day for a month because it was that loss, not because we didn't want Jolene to grow up and go to school, but it was that sadness of what was lost and, and, and feeling that. But if you look at Scripture and you look at the kind of standard to which we are supposed to be conformed, that standard of Christ and how Scripture describes Christ, the two passages that came to mind for me were the, the fruit of the Spirit is one, and then the Beatitudes is another that describes the citizens of God's kingdom. You can't learn those things without challenge and suffering. You can't learn them otherwise. How do you learn to be patient unless you're driven to the end of your patience? How do you learn to love unless you have to learn how to love something that's hard to love? It's easy to love the the lovely things. It's hard to love the unlovely things. 
Everything changes except one thing, and that's God. That's why he calls himself the great I am. He's the only thing that is, that comprehensively is and doesn't change. And the only one in Scripture to whom that is attributed is Father God and Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only one who is stated as being unchanging. It says in um, Hebrews uh, chapter 8, or chapter 13, sorry, chapter 13, and then Revelation chapter 1, in Hebrews it says that Jesus is, it says specifically Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And then in Revelation it says, this com- Jesus is saying of the Lord, he's saying uh, this is from the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who lasts forever. So we should recognize that change is hard and that God is using change to, to push us and to test us. It says in First um, Peter, I see I have the reference written here somewhere. I'm just giving you these so you can look them up if you like. In First Peter 1, 7, 1 Peter chapter 1, then it says the purpose of troubles is to test your faith. And God doesn't do that in a, in a he's not doing that in a mean testing way. He's doing that to, sh- to reveal something to you. And it's always going to be something about himself. And so when we face hard changes, I'm so often tempted to say, oh, how could this happen to me? When the question he wants me to be asking is, what does this reveal to me about my God? And that's where we find comfort in change. Look at what Jacob did when he was facing a very hard change. He went and sought his God. He went out of his way. Instead of, you know, full speed down to Joseph, he detoured to spend time with his God. And there, what he found was comfort, a repeating of the promises, and God saying, I'm going with you. So I encourage you, I encourage you to spend quiet time with God. Take everything that's on your mind and on your heart, take it, all the struggle that you're thinking about, take it to Him and say, hey, is this going to be okay? Are you going with me? Do you have something good for me? And what you're going to hear is the, the, the comforting spirit of your Father say, yes, of course. Yes, of course. By the way, I'm doing something that you don't know about. And it's, and, and it's, when I spoke with the youth group yesterday, we talked about how it says in Ephesians 3, it's one of those weird places where it says, God's revealing the mysteries of Christ to show the wisdom of God to a whole realm of heavenly hosts. That thing where we always think, oh, He's showing it to us. Well, He is, but not just us. He's showing something, and it requires a cosmic plot, and it requires an overarching working of him saying, no matter what my enemies try to do, I will work it for the good of my kingdom. And at the end, what it reveals, it says in that Ephesians chapter 3, I think it's verse 9, it says uh, it reveals God's wisdom. You can't get around it. The brothers tried to get rid of their brother. Instead, wound, he wound up being the reconciliation of the entire family and being that type of Christ. Let's have the worship team come on up. In Psalm 138.8, David says, 
He, he lists all the things that are surrounding him, all the change that he hates, all the attacks that he's undergoing. But then he says in Psalm 138.8, he says, the, he says, God's purpose for me will be fulfilled. So no matter what, the purpose that God has and what he has for you, which he promises us in Jeremiah 29.11, is good, it will be fulfilled. It says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, the word of the Lord stands forever. What he decrees will happen. It says in Psalm, in Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, and his heart for his people lasts through all generations. In the book of Numbers, God actually compares himself to people, and he says, I'm not a human. You guys lie, or you guys say things or intend things, and they don't happen. Everything I intend happens, and everything I say is true. And that's, on one hand, terrifying, but on the other hand, if you realize He loves you and His heart for you is a heart of kindness and gentleness and conforming you to His Son, see, the thing is God wants us to change and grow, and we hate changing and growing. That's a lot of, that's a lot of the human life, suffering. And it constantly tells us in Scripture that the suffering conforms us to Christ. So we don't suffer for suffering's sake, we suffer for Christ's sake. And the one thing we learn in all of it is that we can trust Him. You can trust Him. Let's worship together and I'll come back and lead us in communion. You guys know what week this is. Um, next week's Easter. I'm excited to teach the resurrection. But meanwhile, there's a death. And the thing that makes it so hard, and I think makes it very real, is we are Christ to each other. This is the body of Christ. Rob Cook, you are Christ to me. Seth, you are Christ to me. Johnny, you are Christ to me. Shannon, you are Christ to me. Amanda, you are Christ to me. Brittany, baby Ollie, you are Christ to me. Preston, you are Christ to me. And Sam, you are Christ to me. Matt and Sarah, you're Christ to me. And even though I believe in the resurrection, I don't want Jesus to die. I don't want his body to be broken. I don't want his blood to be poured out. Even Jesus said, is there any other way? And he said, is there any other way? But I trust you, Father. And then he told us to remember him, to remember his body and remember his blood. And to remember, as we're 
Paul is, harps on in practically every, every single letter that the ministry of Christ is reconciliation. It's a ministry of unity. It's a ministry of bringing together. We can trust that. And I do trust in the resurrection. And I, 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 it, ma it makes it so real because you can identify with the disciples who are going, what is going on? Why does this have to happen? And he's saying, oh, wait till I show you. Wait till I show you what's going on. And they couldn't possibly have known, and they weren't supposed to at that point. And, I, and it's not just them. I think, there's a, and I, I think there was a, an enemy who felt victorious in that moment, an enemy who watched Christ die and said, this is a great victory for me. The Bible actually tells us that. It said if they had really understood what was going on, they would have done things very differently. <laughs> but God works everything together for good. So there's this thing about this, this, you know, this life and death thing that God put us in where we live this life that is, has constant reminders of death, constant reminders of life, and everything in between. And he makes it real clear that the only thing we can really, really trust is him. He's the only thing that doesn't change. He's the only thing immutable and that his love for us is perfectly immutable. It doesn't change. So I invite you to communion this morning to, uh, I invite you to remember that. And if it's okay with you, if, if you guys don't mind, let's take communion together this morning. So if you can, during this song, if you can just get up get communion and uh, sit down at your seats and we'll uh, take it together this morning. We take communion, uh, we who are in Christ, and if you're not in Christ and you don't know what that means, then uh, this, you know, find me, we'll talk about it. It means to trust that Jesus' death and resurrection was the death of your sin and the resurrection of your eternal life. And that only through him can you be reconciled with the Father to everlasting life. And it's to understand that that came at a great cost. And that great cost was his perfect life being destroyed and a perfectly violent death. And it was his body and his blood that was poured out for us. And so on the on the very night that he was betrayed by the people he was uh, there to call to life and salvation, then he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take the body together. Lord Jesus, we do remember you, and we see you, and we're looking forward to the day when we see you face to face, but we thank you for being the body to us.
and the life to us. Let's take the cup together. Father in heaven, we are submitted to you, and we worship you, and we love you, and we love the people that you love, and we love the word that you've given to us, and we love the life that you've given to us. Lord, comfort us and give us strength and wisdom, and help us to trust you in everything. Amen.